Amen. Please be seated if you have your Bibles. We are in the book of Mark, chapter 8. Ultimately, the question that was asked of Jesus to the disciples could be summed up almost as well by saying, How great am I? Peter could almost as easily have answered, How great thou art, as he did, you are the Christ. This morning, we're really going to wrestle with the most important question that any man, woman, boy, or girl on the face of God's green earth could answer. You see, the question that we have before us is the same question that each of you must answer. None of us gets to walk into eternity casting a no vote. Who do you say that Jesus is? This morning, regardless of what frame of mind you walked into here with, my request for you is that for the next few minutes, you will allow the Holy Spirit of God to search your heart, to show you your sin, that you would be willing to set your preconceived notions aside for a while and to trust that God knows best and that regardless of how you may feel, That God's word is true. That your sins are heinous. And that the only hope for all of mankind is the cross of Jesus Christ. My prayer today is that as we consider this word, that you would be willing to be humbled under the mighty hand of God. That you would be willing to be embarrassed at your own sin. For the sake of the salvation of your everlasting soul. I want us to get as much out of this passage of Scripture as we possibly can this morning. The, um, this is the last, the last sermon that we will have in Mark until, until February the 3rd of next year. Uh, it, it, it marks an incredible turning point for us in the book of Mark. It, it's, it's here that the entire book hinges. If we miss this, we miss the crux of what Mark wants us to have. 
And if you miss this, you may very well miss out on eternity with Christ. And Jesus went with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist. And others say, Elijah. And others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. Let's pray. Father God, I pray that the Holy Spirit of God would move among us. I pray, Lord God, that you would move so powerfully that we would be willing to set aside our own agenda, to set aside our own pride, to set aside our own arrogance, to set aside our own ideas or our own answers, and instead, Lord God, to allow you to replace all of those things with the conviction that comes from the Holy Spirit. And that, Father God, that you would change our hearts, change our minds, even change our intentions, Lord God. Change our affections. Draw us unto yourself. Lord, I pray that there would be many here today who would be willing to allow the Holy Spirit of God to see deep into their souls, to reveal their sin, that they would repent, Lord God, and that they would be changed forever. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Do you know that for your own salvation, it doesn't matter what anyone else says about Jesus, only what you confess about Him. Sometimes the most powerful statements can come from the most unexpected places. Henry VIII famously separated England from Rome. After his death, his young son Edward was urged by many to move the Church of England into a more Bible-based Christianity. But shortly thereafter, Mary would ascend the throne of England. Many of you remember Bloody Mary from... Your history books, one of her greatest desires was to bring England back to the Roman Catholic Church. As a result of that, one of her first actions as queen was to arrest some of Edward's religious advisors, including Bishop Nicholas Ridley, Bishop Hugh Latimer, and Archbishop Thomas Cranmer. After serving time in the Tower of London, the three were taken to Oxford in September of 1555 to be examined by the Lord's Commissioner. When he was asked if he was willing to honor the Pope as the heir to Peter's authority in the church, Ridley said that he could not honor the Pope in Rome because the papacy was seeking its own glory. Hugh Latimer refused to accept the Roman Mass, telling the commissioners, Christ made one oblation and sacrifice for the sins of the whole world. Then that a perfect sacrifice neither needeth there be more, can, nor can there be any other propitiatory sacrifice. As a result of their commitment to biblical orthodoxy, both Ridley and Latimer were sentenced to death by burning at the stake. On October 16, 1555, the men were walked to their execution site. Ridley kissed the stake where he would be lashed and burned. He prayed for God to be glorified through his death. And for those who accused him to be forgiven. But as the fire was lit and the flames rose, Latimer encouraged Ridley with these words. Be of good comfort, Mr. Ridley. Play the man. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England as I trust shall never be put out. 
From the place of his fiery death, Latimer pronounced the quote that he would be best remembered by and proclaim what would be a prophetic word in the years to come. Play the man. You see, England would split with Rome, and from England would come not only the first great missionary enterprise from Europe, but the rise of the Puritans and others who would hold firmly to the Bible. We would see the truths of God's Word carried out of that great land. There, with flames surrounding him, Latimer urged Nicholas Ridley to man up. And it is this statement statement from a saint of God in his 70s. That's right, in his 70s. That has stood the test of time. Normally great quotes are found in books or carefully crafted speeches. Lincoln didn't just stumble upon four score and seven years ago. King didn't just make up on the moment that he had a dream. Normally these great quotes come from carefully crafted speeches and books. But occasionally history records remarkable words that come in very inopportune times. Latimer's words are one of those occasions. Man up, Mr. Ridley. The privilege to die is upon us. Another one of those amazing quotes that comes at a rather inopportune time is Peter's bold statement in Mark chapter 8. See, standing near Caesarea Philippi, History helps us to understand that Jesus and his disciples in the outer portions of that city in the villages and the surrounding areas probably stood near an ancient shrine to the Roman fertility god Pan. A shrine that all the way back in the Old Testament had been used as a place of worship for Baal. Standing in this very fertile area, looking back at the mountains and the rocks and the caves, the grottoes where these fertility gods were worshipped, Jesus brings his disciples around him. Remember, he's been trying to get alone with them for a while, and the people kept following him. And so here Jesus gathers his disciples around him at a place of pagan worship. And there in that place of pagan worship, Jesus confronts his disciples. Who do people say that I am? Can you imagine the picture as Jesus perhaps stood with the mountain to his back and his disciples before him, perhaps even motioned up at the pagan shrines around him? says, who do people say that I am? Some say John the Baptist, others Elijah. Jesus perhaps steals his glaze. His gaze looks down at his disciples. But who do you say that I am? This morning as we consider the myth, the men, and the Christ of this story, I want to make sure that in the back of your mind, or perhaps in the front for the entire message, is the question that must ring into your heart. Who do you say that he is? Who do you say? This morning we see three things that jump off the page, I believe, at us. The first thing we see here this morning is the myth. The myth, the myth that surrounded Jesus. Jesus said to his disciples, Who do people say that I am? 
The world around Jesus affirmed his gifts. The world around Jesus even honored him as a great man. But, but notice, the myth here is not that he is a God who has come down among them. The myth is that maybe he is somebody who's come back. Maybe John the Baptist didn't really die. There's no chance that he could be everything that maybe he claims to be. What is the myth? Who do they say that I am? John the Baptist, Elijah. Maybe you're just one of the prophets. Maybe you're just a great prophet that has come from before. This is not so different from many in our world today or really in the past century. Jesus didn't ask, how do I make people feel? Jesus wasn't concerned with the feelings. He said, who do people say that I am? And for at least a century in our country, that question has been met without biblical answers. Who do you say that I am? Who do people say that I am? Many people say great things about Jesus, don't they? Well, he was a good man. He was a great prophet. Maybe he was even a healer. He was a good preacher. He was somebody that I should model my life after. But who do they say? That's a myth. But is the myth the reality? Who do people say that I am? That's what Jesus wanted to know. He wanted to know who do they believe me to be. The world has long been confused by equating Christianity primarily with feelings. Some of you show up on Sunday morning to get a good feeling. Isn't that right? I'm not asking you to answer out loud, but I'm asking you to answer internally. Some of you haven't lived for Jesus perhaps in your entire life. Perhaps you haven't lived for Jesus in many years, but you still show up on Sunday morning because it's just the thing that you do, and it feels good. You like to come in and sing good songs, and if, especially if we'll sing songs that make us feel good, then we can wrestle with the question, how does Jesus make me feel? But Jesus didn't ask, how do I make you feel? Jesus said, who do they say that I am? You see, the issue of feelings was, was initially a problem that plagued liberal Christianity. In the early parts of the 20th century, it was liberal Christianity that wrestled with feelings. J. Gresham Machen wrote one of my favorite books called Christianity and Liberalism in 1923. There he said that the Christian movement at its inception was not just a way of life in the modern sense, but a way of life founded upon a message. It was based not upon mere feelings, not upon a mere program of work, but upon the accounts of facts. In other words, it was based upon doctrine. It wasn't based upon feelings. The language of feeling has moved, though, from, of course, the liberal sphere into the conservative Christian circles. Ask many, maybe even many of you, if you belong to Jesus, you may respond with a very subjective answer, like, I feel like I'm a Christian, or I feel like Jesus is inside me. Now, some of you will accuse me of being way too academic here, but let me explain. The myth must be countered with the facts, with history. Machen, again, is helpful. Christ died. That is history. Christ died for our sins. That is doctrine. Unless we are willing to acknowledge both that Jesus died and that he died for our sins, then we can have no absolute confidence in our salvation in Christ. Who do people say that I am? Jesus wanted to know what the world believed about him. But he was fixing to dispel the myth. You see, he was fixing to explain to his disciples to make sure that they fully understood that their responsibility 
was to take not the feelings about Jesus, the wrong myths about Jesus and see them multiplied, but to take the truth about Jesus and to see it proclaimed so that the church of Jesus Christ would be built up. What about you? Do you believe the truth about Jesus? Or do you continue to cling to the lie? Are you still praying for Jesus to bless your sin rather than trusting that he would change you from the inside out? How many of you are committed to living lives that are characterized by commitment to Jesus Christ? Or do you still live a life walking, walking along the edge, hoping that you can live somewhere between the holy and the unholy, that you can balance between the world and the church, that somehow or other you can serve both Jesus and Baal? You cannot! There is no middle ground with Christ. The Bible says, be ye holy as I am holy. He will tolerate. He will tolerate no imitators. He will tolerate no lies. You belong to Christ or you belong to Satan. There is no in between. Who do you say that I am? He is either the God of all the universe and he deserves all of your worship or he is nothing. But if he is the God of all the universe, then he alone has the right to tell you how it is that you should live. And just because you think it's a good idea doesn't mean that it is because your thoughts pale in comparison and must humble under the authority of Christ. He alone gets to determine what is sin and what is holy. Folks, some, sometimes we've been taught the myth, right? Sometimes we didn't create the myth all on our own. Sometimes we grew up under the myth. For some of you, you're new believers and you're still trying to figure out what it is that you're supposed to believe. And the world has sold you the myth. Some of you have parents that have sold you the myth. Some of you have read enough self-help books to buy the myth. Or you watch too many TV preachers and you don't really know what to believe. Here is what we must believe. This and this alone. Who do they say that I am? It really doesn't matter because the only thing that matters is who is he. The myth that surrounded Jesus didn't question his abilities or his influence. Many of you are happy to give Jesus fame. Many of you are happy to give Jesus credit for some good things. But you are not yet willing to give Jesus control. He won't be your Savior unless he is also your Lord. He either gets the throne room of your life or you have given him nothing. You see, you have a choice. You will either set yourself up on the throne of your life or you will set God upon that throne. But you can't have it both ways. Worshiping the Lord, serving Christ is not a democracy. It is a holy authority that sets up reign in our life and it is our privilege to serve at His behest. You must dispel the myth. Second, this morning, the men, Jesus turned to the men who knew Him best. Why? Because of all people, they should know the truth. They had been allowed into the inner circle to see his miracles, but they had also heard his explanations. Who do you say that I am? Listen carefully. What others have to say about Jesus will never result in your salvation. What others did for Jesus will never result in your salvation. The preacher's kids aren't automatically saved. The deacon's kids aren't automatically saved. The Sunday school teacher's kids, the life group leader's kids are not automatically saved. You are not saved because of the faith of your wife 
or the faith of your husband? Who do you say that he is? How many of you have lived behind the lie for a long time? On the outside, you've told the whole world who he is, but on the inside, you've made sure that he understood very clearly and plainly that you were in control. How many of you have ever had that conversation with Jesus? I did once upon a time. I did. I remember it plain as day. I remember saying, I'll serve you, but you can't have control. How well did that go? Not too good. Because I want you to listen to the lie that I told. I will serve you, but you can't have control. What is a servant? A servant is a person who serves at the behest of a master. What I said was, I'll let you kind of be my master as long as I'm still in control. That's no servant at all, and it's certainly no master. Our hearts are idol factories. We've been setting ourselves up as our own idol since the beginning of creation. Jesus turned to the men who knew him best, and he says, Who do you say that I am? Because at the end of the day, the faith or the lack of faith of the Pharisees couldn't save them. The faith or the lack of faith of the Sadducees couldn't save them. The faith or the lack of faith of anybody couldn't save them. Only their own faith in Jesus Christ. That's important here. Faith all by itself doesn't save a thing. A lot of people like to talk about faith these days. But it's not just faith. It's faith in Jesus Christ. Period. Well, I have faith. Faith in what? I have faith that if I jump off this stage, I'll float to the back of the room. Guess what I'll do? I'll bust my face on this floor. I have all the faith in the world, but that faith in this air to support me is not going to actually fulfill my hopes. My hopes and dreams will be shattered in a bloody mess on the floor right here. Many of you are leaning on a faith, but it's a faith in yourself or a faith in something else, a faith in the American dream perhaps, a faith that your kids are going to get into the college you want them to go to, a faith that you're going to be popular at school. A faith of this or a faith of that. The only faith that will save you is a faith in Jesus Christ who literally died on a cross to save you from your sins, who literally was buried in a grave for three days, who literally rose from the grave in victorious triumph, who ascended into heaven and sits today at the right hand of God, interceding on behalf of those who are His children. You have a faith in that, Jesus? He's not a lukewarm Jesus. I recognize I'm a little passionate this morning. Some of you have recognized I'm a little passionate this morning. I will not apologize because there's a whole bunch of you that need to get a whole lot more passionate about Jesus because you've been living your life in lukewarm waters and lukewarm waters are not Christian waters. See, the danger of the lukewarm waters that surround you is that Satan made them just warm enough to make you comfortable and like a frog in a kettle, he's cooling them off slowly, slowly, taking complete control of your life. You want to know what it's like to step into the waters with Jesus? It will burn you up when you begin it. He will mess up your life. He will ruin you. He will destroy it. And then about three weeks later, you look around and your whole world's spinning and you say, what in the world is going on? Everything's like a train wreck. But you look up and you see Jesus is driving the train and you say, wreck me though you will. I will follow you wherever you you will go. Because over time, that train wreck begins to straighten out. And you begin to discover that if they would lead you to the stake to be burned, you would kiss that stake as you arrived. And you'd look to your brother and say, play the man, Mr. Ridley. The Lord has chosen to light a candle in us that will burn brightly. The men. Peter, of course, the loudmouth, answers first. 
looking up at that pagan shrine and recognizing well, well where they were. Who do you say that I am? Peter, because Peter always wants a fight, right? Peter looks up and says, Ha ha, you are the Christ. It's so easy to be a believer in America. We don't look at Muslim holy sites and exclaim, You are the Christ, knowing that in so doing we have just signed a death warrant. I've been amazed to see the news cycle reporting on the brutality of the Saudi Arabian regime, which it should. But it's been sad for me to see because that brutality in that country against Christians has been well known for many years. Their story of human rights is atrocious, and yet our country has allowed it in continued partnerships. You see, the lifespan for Christians in Saudi Arabia is very short. Because when they give their lives to Christ, they sign a death warrant. Oh, it's easy to be a Christian in America. It's the reason there are so many lukewarm people. I hesitate to call you a lukewarm believers. Because I'm afraid that sometimes in the church, we've given you the privilege of being called a lukewarm Christian, when the reality is... You're a lukewarm non-Christian. See, I'm afraid that what we've done in the church is warmed the waters to make it too comfortable. I love our baptistry because it's heated. Some of y'all didn't know that. I mean, it's really heated. Like, it's, like we have to turn the temperature down sometimes. I got in there a few months ago and sweated. I mean, just poured sweat. It's got a, 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 like a sauna. Is that what you call those things? Like, you know, a whirlpool sauna thing. That's what kind of heater. It's under, the, under the, the baptistry back here. You have to climb up under there, and you can actually adjust the temperature. It's great. You know, it doesn't matter how cold it gets outside. I can come in here and have a hot bath. I mean baptistry. And it can be as cool or warm as we want it to be. It can I'm sweating like crazy up here right now because when that baptistry is full and the heat comes on in this place, it is like a thousand degrees on this, on this stage. But man, it's so easy to get baptized here. I love it. I even have waiters. Some of y'all don't know that. I don't ever get a drop of water on me when we baptize. I take my shoes off. I step into my waiters. I walk down in the water. I put my robe on so y'all can't see my waiters. So I look all sophisticated. I baptize, I walk up out. There's people up there that help me. Sloan has been helping with the baptisms lately. There's people up there that help me. They help me step out of my way. I mean, literally. I, I, I mean, I'm weighted on hand and foot. They help me literally step out of my waders onto dry floor. My shoes are waiting at the corner so that I don't have to get my socks wet. I grab my shoes. I sit down on the steps. I put my shoes on. I walk into my office. I grab my jacket and my Bible, and I walk out. And some of y'all wonder, how in the world did he get ready that fast? It's because I never got wet. It's great. It's easy. But it's very different. Angela and I visited the oldest, one of the oldest, perhaps the oldest Southern Baptist church in Georgia. Years ago, we were driving back from a family function on her side of the family, coming up Highway 221 out of Georgia. And we passed... A church, and it was a big, beautiful church. We, I think we had to turn around and, 
And as we were turning around, there was a, a, a historical marker. So I said, eh, we're here. You know, I like churches. Let's get out and read the marker. We got out and we read the marker. Well, apparently somebody was curious as to why we were in the churchyard. So somebody, it was a Saturday. They were there fixing coffee for Sunday morning. If anybody wants to start fixing coffee on Saturday night for Sunday morning, come see me. We have room for you. So they came and they said, hey, can we help you? I said, well, we're here to vandalize your sign. Um, I know. I said, hey, we just stopped. I was reading the, the marker. Um, yeah, we're the oldest church. That's incredible. Well, you can actually go and see the original church building if you're interested. We still own the property. There's, there's picnic grounds there. And there's, there's a, an, an outdoor baptistry. Matter of fact, many of the people in this church were baptized in that baptistry. We didn't used to have an indoor one even until recent times. I said, well, that's cool. How'd you fill it up? Well, there's a creek. And they devised a system to divert the water from the creek into the baptistry. I said, wow, I bet that was chilly. It was freezing. See, baptism was a big deal. You want to get baptized in November? It is not going to be enjoyable for anybody. Oh, I'm afraid that we've made the waters of sin too warm and comfortable. That we've made lives of nominalism too warm and comfortable. That there are many that walk into the doors of our church, this church, Malvern Hill Baptist Church, the church that I love dearly and call home. Many that walk into the doors of this church who live at best a lukewarm Christianity and at worst a lukewarm lostness. I guess my grave concern is how in the world do you know? How do you know? You see, if you're living in the lukewarm water, the place where the warm waters of Christianity wash into the cold, frigid waters of a lost world. How do you know where you are? Well, I feel like it. It doesn't matter. How do you know? I can't go to God's Word and find a picture of people that belong to Jesus that regularly live right here in the middle. And yet some of you have been sold alive goods. Now look here. I don't want to blame all the churches for doing it. Because a lot, most of the time we sell ourselves the lie. I'm not telling you that every church is perfect. All churches have messed up. But so often we sell ourselves the lie. We look in the mirror and we lie to ourselves. You know what? It doesn't matter what I do throughout the week because I tell people about Jesus. It doesn't matter how I live my life because I'm going to show up. And I tithe. I volunteer. I help. Well, I mean, I know other people don't think this is right, but you know what? I've always lived this way. This is our only standard. And if your lifestyle runs contrary to this, it doesn't matter what anyone else says. You are in sin. And you must repent. Peter said, you are the Christ. Turn backwards with me to Matthew's account of this passage in Matthew chapter 16. Matthew gives us a more detailed account of this. Now, Peter, we believe, was Mark's um, 
uh, source, and so it makes good sense that Peter would leave out some of the congratulatory things about himself. But Matthew includes this part. Now, when Jesus came to the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked the disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Listen to Jesus' answer. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona. That means son of Jonah. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter. In the Greek, that is Petros. And it means rock. I tell you, you are the rock. And on this rock, I will build my church. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Jesus says, I tell you, you are Peter. You are the rock. And on this rock, I will build my church. Now, this doesn't give us a reason to adopt a Roman Catholic understanding that the Pope is the cornerstone upon which the church is built. That is not biblical. As a matter of fact, Peter wasn't building anything. Jesus says, you are the rock. Now, more than likely, he means to include all the disciples, all of y'all. But Peter, of course, is going to be the spokesperson, right? Peter's going to preach a, a sermon at Pentecost, and thousands are going to be saved. You are the rock. But watch what he says. Upon this rock, I will build my church. Look at me. You do nothing outside of God's incredible, powerful hand upon you. The blessings of Malvern Hill Baptist Church or every other church across this land come not as a result of the incredible gifts of any one person, but as a result of the power of God working through the message of the gospel and the Holy Spirit to bring lost men, women, boys, and girls to salvation in Jesus Christ. You are the Christ. These men got it. And look at what Jesus wants them to understand. It is through these men that he's going to dispel the world's myth and set the message aright. The shrines of paganism would not prevail against the God of the universe because these men would stand up and proclaim, this Jesus whom you crucified is he. Folks, have you worked to dispel the myth around you? Have you, having pronounced that this is the Christ, the Son of the living God, Have you worked to draw others unto Him? Have you worked to speak to others the the life-giving message of the gospel? We're going to have a fall festival here on Wednesday night. We're praying that God would send us 16 or 1,800 people like He has in years past. And as all those people flood to our campus, and we have an opportunity for many of them to say, why in the world do y'all do this? Will you respond with courage? Will you respond with faith? Will you respond with passion and say, Jesus Christ died for my sins and gave me a second chance at life. And we do this because he has compelled us to love our neighbor as ourselves and to proclaim the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Are you willing to do that? Are you willing to speak hard truths in the lives of people? The myth, the men, and then finally the Christ. The Christ, the promised one. You are the Christ. See, the ultimate question for each of us is the same as that that he posed the disciples. Who 
do you say that he is? Many modern preachers are trying to bring people to the church without requiring them to relinquish their pride. They're trying to help people avoid the conviction of sin. And consequently, the church is busily engaged in an absolutely impossible task. The church is busily engaged in calling the righteous to repentance. You are not righteous, save for the blood of Jesus Christ. You can't have Jesus as the Christ, as your Savior, and keep yourself on the throne of your life. You can't have Him as Savior without having Him as Lord. He will tolerate no rivals. He is either the Christ and is worthy of your worship, or He is not. You will acknowledge His dignity and rep- or His deity and repent of your sins, or you will not be saved. Is that a hard truth? Yes, but is it God's truth? Absolutely. Many people are clinging to their feelings. I don't feel bad. You don't feel like Jesus is all that serious. You don't feel like a rotten sinner destined for hell, but you will either trust your feelings or trust God's Word. You see, that's the great question for all of mankind. Will you trust yourself? Or will you, like Adam and Eve, long to be your own God? Will you work to know good and evil and be your own law? Or will you submit? Will you bow down? See, I'm willing to acknowledge that I'm asking something absolutely insane of you today. I'm asking you to bow down before Jesus, even if you don't feel like it. I'm asking you to repent of your sin, even if your sin doesn't feel all that bad. What I'm asking you to do is trust that God's Word is true, even if you don't like it. Have you ever known people that seem to believe that they can create truth with their words, right? We, we, see, we see especially little kids do this sometimes. You know, I, I, want, I want juice. We don't have any juice. But I want juice. We don't have any juice. You can't have juice. Well, I, I want juice. We don't have any, so what do you want? Juice. I mean, I mean, the reality is that, that at, a, at a super young age, literally, they don't always fully understand what we don't have means. Now, the trouble, the struggle is that when they move beyond that super young age not understanding what it means, and they just move to that bratty age where they fully understand what it means, but they want to make sure they've asserted their authority. You know, so like if we were to summarize their thoughts, they don't usually say it out loud. But if we were to summarize their thoughts, they might say something like, Well, you idiot, I want juice, so why don't you get me some juice? A lot of us want to create our own reality when it comes to the Lord and when it comes to the nature of sin and salvation in the gospel. Well, I don't feel like this is a sin. Well, the Bible says it is. But I don't feel like it's a sin, but the Bible says it is. We can take an easy one like drunkenness. I don't feel like it's a sin. The Bible says it is. Well, I don't feel like six beers a night is too much to make me drunk. Well, you know, the law says that's drunk, and the Bible says you shouldn't be drunk, so it is a sin. But I don't feel like it. You you understand that when we find ourselves in that place, that what we're essentially saying is, well, if I keep saying it enough, then maybe what I desire will become reality. See, let me convince the Lord that he's wrong and that I'm right. How's that going for you? See, the reason that it continues to nag at us is because we can't make wrong right and right 
wrong. We've seen terrible tragedies in our country this week. People murdered because of the color of their skin, because of their religious beliefs. People who believe that they can make their hate right by killing others. We can't make wrong right. And no matter how hard we try, God will never allow us to make right wrong. So I'm asking something of you today that is insane. I'm asking you to bow before Jesus. I'm asking you to bow down and to say, Lord Jesus, these things in my life don't feel wrong. These things in my life don't feel bad. But God, Your Word says they are. God, I'm going to have to repent of these things, even though I don't feel like it. I'm going to have to repent to my family, even though I don't feel like it. You see, the Bible says that all have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. You see, there's laid up for us the incredible hope of the resurrection. I was able to pray with a lady today. Her sister is on hospice and is dying. Dear sweet lady in our church, Miss Barbara Mason, who's uh, away from us. Uh, her, her medical care takes place in, in New York City, but she's been placed on hospice. What a blessing to be able to pray with her sister today on the phone. Speak to the joy of the resurrection. To know that because she's put her trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, that her last breath in this life is but a speed bump on her way to eternity. The Bible says that all have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. There is the hope of the resurrection that awaits, but hear me today. Whether you like it or not, if God's Word is true, and I would stake my life on it, then the only people who inherit eternal life are those who have put their faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. The waters of baptism are a perfect reminder for us today of those who have been buried in Christ and raised to a new life, washed of their sins and raised to a new life. See, the expectation is that Cole and Kate left their sin in the water. And walked out with Jesus. They left their old life and walked into a new one. You say, but pastor, I like my old life. I like the friends in my old life. I like the things I do in this life. And I'm asking you to trust Jesus more than you trust your own feelings. I'm asking you to trust Jesus more than you trust the world around you. I may be even asking you to trust Jesus more than you trust your spouse or your parents, more than you trust your children or the the approval of of the world. See, I'm asking you to trust Christ. Parents, I'm asking you to trust Christ when you raise your children. Oh, heaven forbid those parents who have thought that they could walk a line with their kids. 
They need Jesus. Period. That's it. All those of you who have crested the golden years of life, who believe you can cruise into eternity without having given Jesus full control, you will stand before a holy God one day and He will say, why should I allow you into my heaven? And you will answer, either Jesus owns me or He does not. Oh, students. Oh, my teenagers. Man, I love our teenagers. But look at me, and I want you to look at me very clearly, very closely, very carefully. What you are at 14 is what you will be at 34, outside of a miraculous, powerful work of the Holy Spirit of God. Parents, pray for your kids. 80% of them that come to Christ do so before they are 14 years old. If you've got a 17-year-old on your hands that doesn't know Jesus, you'd better be on your face every single night. Oh, the window is closing for you. You say there's time, and I'm telling you that you will waste it. The climax of Mark's gospel The people have seen all of Jesus' works. His disciples have walked with Him. They've heard His teaching. But here they come to this pagan shrine. Pick your pagan shrine in our American culture. What is it? Pick it. The shrine of popularity? The shrine of materialism? Which one is it? They stand at their pagan shrine. They look up at their pagan gods. And Jesus says, who do the people say? And they say, oh, Jesus, they like you. You're fun. You're popular. Man, you're one of the prophets, they think. And Jesus looks down and He says, But who do you say? Perhaps Peter with fear and trembling, recalling that night as he stepped out of the boat and walked across the wind and the waves, reflecting upon the only possible explanation for a man who could multiply bread and fish. The only one who could possibly turn water into wine. Perhaps Peter in faith and in fear and in great hope. You are the Christ. You must be the Christ. I've given everything. You're all I've got. Peter says, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. Would you come today and receive the blessing of God's salvation? Would you come? Would you come today and pray for your children? Perhaps some of you would come and pray for the children in this church that don't yet know the Lord. The window is closing. Would you be willing to come this morning and to say, though it costs me everything, give me Christ. Though it costs me my earthly treasures, though it costs me my name, my fame, my popularity, though it costs me all, would you give me Jesus? Jesus, would you save me? Everything in the world hinges on this one question Who do you say that He is? Who do you say this morning? Let's pray. Father in heaven, I pray that we would acknowledge that you are the Christ the Son of the living God.
that in our acknowledgement we would worship you, we would serve you, we would honor you, we would be changed. Give us courage where we are fearful. Give us faith where we are lacking. Oh, Lord, give us holiness to fill up our sin. In Jesus' name, amen. Stand with us as we sing.